It's either six or seven weeks in a row. If you don't have that passage memorized now, it's not our fault. I like building things. Uh, there's something very satisfying about taking raw materials brought home from Home Depot and turning them into something else. Uh, when I build, I generally go for a rustic look, uh, which means that the imperfections caused by my lack of skill uh, appear intentional. Uh, but when I, you know, when I look at furniture that's uh, built by other uh, or master craftsmen, uh, my jaw just drops, you know, with the same materials that I might have used with some of the same tools in my garage, they can make things that are so much more beautiful uh, than I can make and probably than I ever could make. Yeah, I think the same thing, that same sort of amazement when I look at a new building or I look at a new car, uh, it's astounding. The things that are, are possible for us to to build. Imagine a brand new car rolling off the assembly line, pristine and shiny and perfect, uh, delivered to its owner who immediately takes it out for a drive and parks it at the mall. Uh, of course, not close to the mall, far away from the entrance, probably either double or quadruple parked uh, for protection purposes, doesn't want to be near any other drivers. And while the person's shopping, something falls out of the sky. I don't know what would do this, but just imagination with me. Something falls out of the sky, lands smack dab on the car, flattening it like a pancake, blowing its windows out. Uh, leather seats are destroyed, and you know, one of the wheels even flies off and just sort of rolls sadly away and collapses. I mean, it's a mess. It is ruined. Uh, this is like what has happened to God's very good creation. Because all of creation is cursed. Uh, that's a very specific word usage. All of creation that we find pronounced good and very good throughout Genesis 1 and 2, all of it is cursed. This curse uh, was pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 by God. God pronounced this curse over his creation in Genesis 3. You know, Adam and Eve were made in God's image to rule over God's world. And Adam and his posterity were commissioned to extend God's blessing over all things. Instead, Adam's sin brought God's curse on all things. People, the ground, animals, indeed, the whole universe. And we see this curse pronounced to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, where God's word says this, And to Adam, he, God, said, the word of God said, the creator God, who we know from Colossians, is pre-incarnate Christ. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it, eat of it. Here, here's this. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground, and not just the ground, but the ground and the animals, the planets, the stars, none of these things were created with a spiritual morality that made sin possible for them. Uh, reminded, I think, I, I think I've said it before, and I probably didn't know who to attribute the quote to then either, but I'll just say it was Sproul, uh, said, you know, when you talk about humanity and say, you know, as, as sinful as, as rats, it's, it's demeaning. Oh, I would never say that, sinful, that, that humanity is as sinful as rats. It would be far too demeaning to the rats. 
Because they're functioning as created. They, didn't, they were not created with a spiritual morality making sin possible for them. Nevertheless, even though none of those things sinned, the ground, how does dirt sin, right? But even though it did not sin, yet it was cursed, cursed alongside of humanity because of Adam's sin. The extent of this curse is illustrated at the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. A few passages from there, I mean, each of these could be their own sermon, just trying to lay a little bit of groundwork. Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in or on the earth. Uh, Whose wickedness? Man's. Humanity's wickedness was great in the earth. So verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. That makes sense, right? Who sinned? Man. Who suffers? Man. But it's not done. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Even though humanity, only humanity, was guilty, more than humanity suffered under God's righteous judgment. All of creation suffered because all of creation was cursed due to humanity's sin. So it's pronounced in Genesis 3. I think we can have an illustration of God's judgment in Genesis 6 and 7, the story of the fall. And then Paul, thankfully, elaborates on this curse in Romans chapter 8. Paul elaborates on this curse in Romans chapter 8 when he says this. This is Romans 8, 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Did you notice the victim of this curse in this passage? The victim is the whole creation. The description of the curse, subjected to futility, pointlessness, emptiness, vanity. Subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation, birds, bees, boulders. Not willingly, weren't asked. Is this okay for you to suffer too? Not taken into consideration, right? God subjected this. This is the description subjected to futility, not willingly, bondage to corruption, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, which I don't have firsthand personal experience of. I do have secondhand personal experience of. Glad to not have firsthand personal experience of. Secondhand was more than sufficient. I do find it hard, though, to elaborate precisely on what this curse looks like. I know it was pronounced. I know, I see the aspect of its illustration. I read about it being elaborated on, you know, explained a little bit. But what do an uncursed tree or an uncursed star, what do those things look like? Trees are amazing enough. And if this is their cursed state, right, if the stars are beautiful cursed, what, are they, what will they look like? Uncursed, I don't know. But it seems likely to me that the following descriptions of this curse are accurate. Someone wrote, Adam's fall broke the cosmos, right, the universe. 
Adam's fall broke the cosmos. Animals were set against humanity and other animals. Pests and disease entered the picture. Even nature was thrown into upheaval. Weather, earthquakes, and more now cause death and destruction. So I'm not sure all of the elements of those things. Like it's, I mean, you know, nitrogen cycle involves death and deterioration. How exactly is that post-curse or is that uh, not post-curse? Like there are elements of like, what exactly does this mean? And, I, and that's what I'm just trying to admit. I don't, I don't know. God's creation in its curse state amazes me. But what that could have been, and really we'll see what that will be, just that much more. That's, that's where I'm trying to get across here. Who was the cause of this curse? Him who subjected it, right? Adam, in a sense, right? It was because of his guilt, but it was not Adam who pronounced the curse. It was God who pronounced this curse. God who subjected creation to this futility and bound it to this corruption. And then in Romans 8, we also see the end of the curse is coming. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Because of sin in creation and the curse from sin over creation, I wonder what you would say, what's the biggest problem with that? I would say, here's the biggest problem with that. God, in his perfect holiness, cannot make his permanent dwelling with his people here. His eyes are too pure as to look on sin. Do you think that he would be able to make his permanent dwelling with his people on such a stained place? No sin, no stain can remain in his presence. And it's stained and broken because of our sin. Creation is cursed because of Adam's sin, because of our sin. And something needs to be done. And Christ, the firstborn over the original, now cursed creation, and the firstborn over the coming new creation, Christ has done something. Do you remember the brand new car destroyed in the parking lot? Imagine that heap of rubble being taken not to a junkyard like the one that we have down the street here, but to an auto body shop where it's dismantled piece by piece and then carefully reconstructed into a finished product that is somehow better than the original. Somehow it's shinier, it's more comfortable, it's faster and even gets better gas mileage. So then think about this. And this illustration just always is one of the things that comes to my mind when I think about this subject. Which is more impressive, a brand new car or a perfectly reconstructed car. You know, humanly speaking, we could say, who, who's more impressive? The designers, engineers, and factory workers for the first one, using materials crafted for exactly that purpose, or the type of mechanic, auto body worker, who could take that heap of rubble and rebuild it into something better than the original was. The illustration falls apart because Christ was both. Okay. But, That's, which is more impressive, creation or recreation? Construction or reconstruction out of something so flawed and cursed? I'm more impressed by the the second. Take something and make it glorious out of a mess. 
the glory and supremacy of Jesus is revealed in his creation of all things. That's the first verse, stanza, line, whatever, of this hymn in Colossians 1. But even greater than that, in the second verse of Paul's hymn, the glory and supremacy of Jesus is revealed in his recreation of all things. The making of a new creation out of the old. Here in verse 20, Paul's symphony is crescendoing to its triumphant climax. And we have arrived at the last line, the last majestic truth of the Christology hymn in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which proclaims this last truth. All of creation will be reconciled through Christ. All of creation will be reconciled through Christ. To see it in its context, we've got to go back into verse 18. Christ is the beginning. Do you remember what we said that beginning was? The beginning of what? The beginning of God's new creation. It happened when he rose from the dead. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Take note of the grammar of this second sentence, this sentence in verse 20 for a second, right? We have to have verse 19 to understand verse 20. In him, in Christ, right, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and was pleased to reconcile. Pleased to dwell and pleased to reconcile. That's how this sentence functions. The delight of God in the incarnation and the delight of God in this reconciliation, this new creation. But then here's the truth that we have here, right? All of creation was cursed, is cursed. All of creation will be reconciled. So we see by Paul's own explanation here, uh, to reconcile has to do with making peace. You see that in verse 20? Through him to reconcile, and then he kind of like, well, how? By making peace by the blood of his cross. You don't make peace between friends, right? It makes sense. Reconciliation is not needed unless there's some sort of a break in fellowship. Reconciliation assumes enmity of some level, some aspect of, of hostility, difference, right? Opposition. Reconciliation assumes enmity. Something has to be wrong before reconciliation is needed. Normally, when Paul talks about reconciliation, this is what he means. Uh, reconciliation places in the focus of attention our alienation from God and the divine method of restoring us to his favor. And this is important whenever we talk about reconciliation, right? Uh, every unbeliever hates God. That's uh, not an opinion, that's biblical fact. Um, before you were a believer, you hated God. So, no, I thought God was nice. No, you didn't, right? You thought a God of your making was nice. Uh, we all do, but the real God, you hated. Uh, but reconciliation is not you calming yourself 
and being like, you know what? I do think God's nice. We should be friends. That's not biblical reconciliation. It is not our enmity against God that comes to the forefront in the reconciliation, but God's alienation from us. God is rightly angry at humanity and opposed to humanity because of our sin against him. Well, I'm upset too. Nobody cares. God is angry at our sin. Therefore, reconciliation is needed. Reconciliation through Christ, through Christ normally has to do with God acting to remove his opposition to his people by Christ's death on the cross for us. Christ doesn't mediate between two parties who both have reasons to be upset. God is right. He has been wronged by us. He is justified in his anger against us because of our sin against him. And on the cross, Christ took all our sin on himself and then took all of God's wrath toward our sin on himself. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. When, when Christ declared that his work was finished, he meant that the reason or the basis for God's anger toward his people had been removed, that the debt had been paid. Reconciliation is an amazing word. It's an amazing concept. But back to Colossians 1.20, what does Paul say that God was pleased to reconcile through him to reconcile to himself all things what all things all things whether on earth or in heaven so what what does that mean like we can understand and glory in reconciliation um, as it has to do with our salvation right that's a glorious truth lord willing it's actually next week's truth Every week's truth. Some people will look at this and be like, wow, reconciliation, salvation, God removing that enmity. Yes, all things. So that means all people. Universal salvation. God removes the enmity that he has toward everybody and everybody gets in. We're all friends in the end. Hooray. They take this passage and say, you know, eventually every human being will be saved. Every human being delivered from God's wrath. No one ends up in hell forever. And while the words of this passage could be interpreted, twisted that way, this text absolutely does not mean that. The idea of universal salvation is contrary to so many clear passages of Scripture that speak of the eternal reality of hell and sinful humans suffering there forever. That interpretation, universal salvation, that doesn't agree with Scripture, and it doesn't do justice to this passage. It's not what it's talking about. So that's not the case. So because the phrase, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, it might sound familiar to us. Now, it was like four or five weeks ago, so it might not, not sound familiar to you. But uh, if you read through the passage, it would. Because back in verse 16, Paul wrote, you see this? By him, by Christ, all things were created. All things 
in heaven and on earth. And he goes on to elaborate. He does not mean only the physical reality of our universe, but also the spiritual uh, dimension. I know that sounds kind of sci-fi-ish. I just don't really know what the right word is to put onto that. But the spiritual reality that includes angels and demons. All things include what is visible and invisible. Not not clearly visible and barely visible, right? So not like the moon that we can see with our naked eye and atoms that we can't see with our naked eye. We We have to have very, very powerful microscopic help. That's not the invisibility that he's talking about. Not hard to see, impossible to see, unseeable. And he names some of these things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Other passages in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, I think Ephesians chapter 1, other aspects. Um, even later, I think in, in, in Colossians chapter 2, rulers and authorities, chapter 2, verse 15, um, point to this being those type of spiritual reality, some sort of uh, perhaps angelic or, or demonic hierarchy. Uh, We read about aspects of that, that there are these positions of dominion in the spiritual realm that have to do with the physical creation, that Christ created that too. And in that physical universe and the spiritual reality, that's what he's talking about here. That reconciliation applies to both, just as God's creation, Christ's creation applies to both. All things Receiving this reconciliation cannot be all human people living or dead. That doesn't match with the passage. But does it have to do with angels and demons? Is that what he's talking about? Is this some sort of angelic salvation? Just as some of sinful humanity will be reconciled to God, does this text mean that some of the sinful angels that we know as demons, are some of them going to be reconciled to God? But there's no reason to believe that's the case. Cross that out too. Right? The angels that didn't rebel never entered into an improper relationship with God. There's no cause for enmity to be removed. There's no restoration needed. They've continued to serve God day and night, whatever that looks like in heaven, without ceasing to praise him. No restoration is needed there, and no restoration is possible for the demons who rebelled. Jesus did not become a demon, an angel, to save angels. He became a human to save humans. So this is not some sort of an angelic uh, salvation or demonic salvation because nowhere does Scripture speak of demons receiving an offer of mercy from God. They are eternally confirmed in their rebellion. They will receive their reward. So neither of these interpretations, universal salvation, certainly angelic salvation, neither of those work because I think verse 20 is not actually talking about, strictly speaking, a saving reconciliation. That he's not taught that the definition of Christ taking the wrath for our sin, being made sin for us, so that we could be in God's family again, right? Removing the grounds of enmity so that justification, adoption, redemption, all those things can be ours. So there's another way of talking about this passage, which is cosmic reconciliation, or what I think we could properly call cosmic restoration that this is what this passage is talking about. All of creation is cursed. Remember, I only have two points to this sermon, and I thought that they were pretty easy, so hopefully you didn't forget that one already. All of creation is cursed. Therefore, all of creation needs to be reconciled. It needs to be restored. It needs to be rescued from corruption and God's 
curse. All of creation needs to be reconciled and will be reconciled. It means all of creation needs, something needs to be done about that curse. Things on earth, things in heaven. On earth is not a really difficult phrase to understand. Animals, insects, plants, oceans, rivers, etc. But what about in heaven? In the Bible, sometimes heaven means the sky, clouds, atmosphere. Other times that might be what we call like the first heaven, first heavens, the first layer of that. Um, Sometimes the heavens refers to outer space, so planets, stars, comets. Uh, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have created, right? So the heavens can just be sky, uh, can be outside of the sky, But there's also the third heavens. And the third heavens is the spiritual as in non-physical, not non-real. Don't hear spiritual and think fable, fairy tale, imaginary. That's not what it means. There's more than physical. This third heavens is this spiritual or non-physical realm of angels, the dwelling place of the souls of those who have died. You don't get to take a rocket ship and make your way somehow on some planet, behind some planet, in some galaxy, through a black hole. Well, maybe through a black hole because you'd die. Uh, But you don't find the dwelling place of God. It's not in this physical universe. It's in the third heavens. If Paul is talking about the first and second heavens here in verse 20, on earth and in heaven, he means every part of God's original cursed creation will be reconciled or restored to its proper place. Restored to its proper place. Trees, turtles, rocks, tortoises too, rocks and mountains as well as planets and stars will all be set free from God's curse. Even cats. (laughs) This is certainly true. All of God's creation earth, first heavens, second heavens, all of that being made right, all of that is certainly true. But is it what Paul means? And I don't think so. Because again, back in verse 16, Paul seems to be talking about heaven in the third sense. The spiritual reality outside of our physical universe. Christ created this too. He is not a created, exalted angel. He created all angels. That's what he meant by heaven there. Christ created the invisible, angelic, that that some of that became demonic rulerships called thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And again, like I said a month ago, you're like, Peter, can you elaborate on everything about how that works? I would say, no, (laughs) I don't understand it. You read aspects of it in different passages, uh, prince of the power of the air, Uh, that Paul uses in Ephesians to talk about Satan. You can think about the um, rulerships mentioned in Daniel that the angels do battle against. You can read aspects of the images and the the vision, the revelation given to John about Christ and cosmic battles. We could look at all those different things and see there's a lot going on. Everything that Christ created, physical and spiritual, he will also reconcile. He will also reconcile restore all of those things and put them in their proper place. Everything will end up in its proper place. 
everything will be brought into a right relationship with Christ. Everything will be brought, placed into a proper relationship with Christ. After all, Paul says Christ reconciles all things to himself. Could be God, but I think it's actually more likely that God is in his fullness is pleased for Christ to reconcile all things to Christ. Puts him into the, sends him into the world, the fullness of God dwelling bodily. The beginning of the new creation. And then saying, now make all things right. Reconcile all things. Making peace and reconciling and restoring to its proper place. All of these mean essentially the same thing. So when all is said and done, everything will be at peace with Christ. But this raises a question. How are eternally unrepentant, unforgiven sinners, human or angel or demonic, how are eternally unrepentant, unforgiven sinners brought into peace with Christ? Right? We, already, we discounted universal and angelic or demonic salvation. We said that's not what this is talking about. So how can they be brought into peace with Christ? Well, when Christ's glory and victory are fully and finally revealed, Philippians 2 reveals that every knee will bow to him and every, uh, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue, assumedly in heaven and on earth and under the earth, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does confess mean? Does confess mean I, I like it? Or does confess mean I admit it? And I would say in that passage, really in all passage, confession is admission. When you confess your sins, it's not like you're making something new known to God. You're agreeing with God about what God has said about what you did. Okay? So this confession, Jesus is Lord. He is God. His glory is over all things. Yes, he is the image. Yes, he's the firstborn. Yes, he's the beginning. Yes, he's the end. Yes, he's everything. Everybody admits that, willingly or unwillingly. All expressions of rebellion will be put down and crushed, and then all of Christ's enemies, human and demonic, will be forever cast into the lake of fire to experience the second death, which goes on forever and ever. That will be their proper place in relationship to Christ the proper place for Christ's enemies is enduring his wrath forever, not removed from his presence, removed into a place where his eternal wrath burns against them, into eternal judgment at the hand of God. that will be an expression of Christ making things right. And maybe that's what Paul's pointing to here. That's a bit, maybe, of a stretch on reconciliation and making peace. Like, I see how it works. 
I, could, I know it's going to happen. It was, I was talking to Ken about this. Like, I know that the conclusion of my sermon is right. This is like, but is that what this passage is teaching? I still have some questions. Because I don't have any desire to try to stretch a word beyond its usage. But I want to try to say, like, well, what does this mean? What does it not mean? And try to get us there. Okay? So it's like, oh, Peter said that's exactly what this means. Falls a little bit short of what I'm trying to get across. Maybe that's what Paul's pointing to here. Everything in its proper place, whether blessing or cursing forever. Maybe he's pointing to Christ's enemies being removed from creation into that judgment and then everything else being brought into a good and proper and peaceful relationship with Christ. Did you see like nuance difference there? Like everything put into its proper place or his enemies removed and then everything else. Now the text doesn't say everything else so that's where I, that's where I kind of lean on the first one. But it's like maybe that's an aspect of what he's trying to get across. Either way, that is the goal that we are waiting for. The judgment of Christ's enemies and the reconciliation of creation and the church. So once again, you know, here is uh, the truth of, God, of this passage that all of creation will be reconciled through Christ. Everything will be made right. There are three points about that truth that all creation will be reconciled. Three points I want you to understand about this reconciliation is we see it from this passage and, and really some others as well. All of creation will be reconciled and this is according to God's pleasure and will. God's pleasure. God's delight. That which brings him joy expressed in the reconciliation of all things by Christ, through Christ, to Christ. Very clear from how Paul words this in verses 19 and 20. The fullness of God was pleased through him to reconcile to him all things. As with all things, all things. Read about the birds, sparrows falling, hairs coming out of our heads, all of these things being inside of the will of the Father. Nothing escapes it, big and small. That happens here too. Both the cursing of creation and the coming reconciliation, both of those are part of God's good, wise, and perfect eternal plan. Like we've never veered from it. Never, never a plan B, never a mistake. All things forever working according to God's forever plan. This, what has happened, the cursing and the coming reconciliation, this is what God decreed and ordained in eternity past before there even was a creation. Even when God cursed creation back in the garden in Genesis 3, he already knew that Christ would ultimately reconcile that creation to himself. I see this echoed in Romans 8 as well. God cursed all of creation, right? But Paul says that God did this in hope of creation's future deliverance. Why did this happen? Not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it having done so in hope that the creation would be set free. 
Why did you bind it to corruption, God, so that I could set it free from corruption? Why did you subject it to futility so that I could set it free into purpose? Hope in the Bible is not a hold your breath and cross your fingers kind of wish. Not God setting Adam and Eve, planting the tree and being like, oh, this could go a couple of ways. I, again, if that's your picture of God, you, you've made that image. That's God like you, not God as he is. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation of a promised end or goal. God subjected, to, God subjected creation to futility in hope because it was his eternal pleasure and will to reconcile all of creation through Christ. This reconciliation is according to God's pleasure and it is accomplished by Christ's death. He reconciled all things to himself by making peace by the blood of his cross. And this, this is the whole passage to me. This is the most significant point, the whole thing. The most astonishing aspect of it, the most glorious, the most, you just fill it in. This is, what, this is what Paul is trying to get about, to get through. You know, we often think of Christ's death on the cross as the price paid for our salvation. But have you considered that more than that was accomplished by the shedding of his blood? I had a friend that, talking about this, and we were probably, I think, I think we were on the same side, so it wasn't really arguing, but we were talking about uh, Calvinism and um, limited atonement or particular redemption, right, was uh, not a question of Christ's death and its sufficiency, an eternal, infinite payment by an infinite person, uh, but who was it for, right? We talked about that. Uh, it was for his people. I, he will save his people from their sins. A number of other passages, things we talk about, have talked about it, we'll talk about it again. Um, but I'll remember my friend uh, Matt was his name, and he said, you know, it's like, you look at this, and he's like, there's nothing limited about Christ's atoning death on the cross here. It's like there's, there are bigger things happening. There's more than just the payment of, of our sin for our sake. And not like, oh yeah, like everybody in the same way. No. No, but this infinite payment accomplished more than just the salvation of God's people. Christ's death on the cross accomplished paid for the reconciliation of all of creation, all things in heaven and earth. What, what does this mean? He, by taking our sin on himself, he took the curse for our sin on himself as well. And the curse was not just limited to Eve or to Adam and to the posterity. It certainly was. The curse fell on all of us in Adam's sin. But it also, from Adam, affected and fell on all of creation. And Christ took that curse on himself so that all things could be reconciled. It is through Christ that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God because of his death on the cross. 
Christ is the beginning of the new creation, and he purchased the rights to bring about all the rest of the new creation. He started, he, he paid for the right to make all things new, to reconcile all things, to bring it into its proper place. A few weeks ago, I spoke of creation as if it was a building or a house that needed an inspection. Uh, and when the inspection came through, do you remember the word we used? Uh, the results of that inspection, how bad is the damage? Do you remember what I said? It was in red on the screen. Yes, 10 points to someone over here. Catastrophic. Da- I know who he is, it's just Robbie. I don't know why I didn't just say Robbie. The damage was Catastrophic. Anybody else looks at it, you're just like, tear it down. Tear it down now. Right? It's not just, oh, there's a little bit of moisture and, and some mold. It's like, if you set foot in that, it's going to kill you. That's how bad the damage is. Creation is utterly ruined, in need of total renovation, a complete rebuilding. It's clear that Christ entered creation. He took up residence in this condemned building. He experienced its corruption and futility firsthand. It did cost him his life. And then by his death on the cross, he purchased the condemned building in order to make it new and make it his permanent residence. And if you like home renovation shows, we think of the worst house anyone ever walked into and the greatest transformation ever imaginable. And of course, that still falls short of what happens here. All of creation will be reconciled, and it's accomplished by Christ's death. He made that peace by the blood of his cross. And this is for Christ's glorious supremacy. All of creation will be reconciled so that in everything, Christ might be preeminent. We have to keep coming back to that sentence in verse 18. That in everything, he might be preeminent. That's the goal of everything. And that includes this cosmic reconciliation. You need some afternoon reading, Revelation 21 and 22. You go and read Revelation 22 and you see with the apostle John the vision of the new Jerusalem, a capital city of a new heaven and a new earth, joining the new heaven and the new earth. This is the place which Christ promised his disciples. Remember his promise to them? I'm going to go away. But I'm going to go away because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you with me to that place so we can be together forever. That where I am, you may also be. This is that place. And the glories of that vision, our eternal enjoyment of those glories are all due exclusively to our Lord Jesus Christ. You do not deserve to be there. I do not deserve to be there. Rocks and trees and stars and moon, they don't deserve to be there. Nothing, nothing deserves, no one deserves to be with Christ in favor with him. But yet, all of creation we brought into its proper place. That proper place for us is with Christ, sharing in his glory. He made that possible, so he deserves the glory for all of these things. Our greatest imaginations of what that place will be like fall so short as to be laughable. 
right? Best thoughts that you can have about the new heavens and the new earth. You know, John's like, yeah, it's, it's like, and it's like, and this kind of looked like, I don't know. Our eternal home will be so glorious. It's going to be so spectacular. It's going to be so perfect that it will complete and completely satisfy and with complete satisfaction, it will fulfill everything that we have ever longed for. That doesn't mean like, it's like, oh, I'd like to have a, a slide into a pit of money. So I'll get a slide into a pit of money. So that's not what I'm saying, right? It's like, I'd love to be able to eat sweet things all the time. So just God's just gonna give me whatever I want. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the fulfillment of everything in your heart that you long for will be fulfilled there. Right? Not the petty ways that you try to satisfy your desires. What actually fulfills your desires, that will be fulfilled there. Like what you really want, whether you don't even know. I don't even know. God knows. Because we, what we want is God. And God will be there. But the blessings being in God's presence multiply out. The fulfillment of everything we have ever longed for. And when we are made new. And when we are living with God on an earth that has been made new, everything will make sense. There will not be nothing confusing or, or vain or frustrating anymore. Everything will be clear. We're not going to be omniscient, but I believe that it will all make sense because we'll be with God. We will wholeheartedly agree with God that everything that he did was perfect and right. We have questions. God, why that? You do all things. You do all things right, but I don't like this thing. And I'm not saying that you don't have good reason to not like that thing because we're living in a broken world. What I am saying is then that will make sense. And you will see it in the light of the wisdom and glory of Christ. Then you will see that. So whatever trial or heartache you are going through right now, maybe I know about it, maybe nobody knows about it. Whatever crushing weight is your constant companion, whatever physical or emotional or spiritual suffering that you are enduring or have endured or will endure, endure when you get there, you will see clearly that it was for your good and it was for God's glory. According to God's perfect word, okay, this is not sentiment. This is promise. According to God's perfect word, your sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to you. Romans chapter 8. Furthermore, your light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul did not write that as someone who, uh, how's that hymn go? Uh, carried to the sky on flowery beds of ease. Paul's like, yeah, those times when I was stoned, those times when I was shipwrecked, those times when I was backstabbed and abandoned, those, 
those brothers of mine who, who died martyrs' deaths, those family members who turned on me as I turned to Christ. All of that, right, he says, those, are, those will be light momentary afflictions. They're huge now. I do get that. So this is not just being like, oh, cheer up. Your suffering doesn't matter. It's nothing. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Right, Christ ministers grace having suffered like we have suffered. Right? Christ does not come to us and be like, you think you went through something? Pfft, look at what I went through. No, he says, yeah, come. Come to the throne. Come have mercy. Come have grace to help you in your time of need. But the light momentary affliction that you are currently enduring, whatever it is, it will be seen as a light momentary vaporous affliction when the glory is revealed. All of this is guaranteed and it's not because you deserve it, but it's because Christ has purchased it with his own blood shed on the cross and it is his glory that will be manifested, his glory that will be revealed in us because it's all about Jesus. This is about Jesus. Here is about Jesus. There is about Jesus. You, your life is about Jesus, that in everything he might be preeminent. All of creation will be reconciled through Christ. This is the this truth is the climax of Paul's hymn. It's the consummation of all things, the goal toward which everything is unstoppably, inevitably, unswervingly, undoubtedly moving and has always been moving since, the, since before creation was even created. It's always been the goal. It's always been the end. And that will be the fulfillment of God's plan, his purpose for the ages, to unite all things in Christ. And we've spent six weeks in the six verses that make up this hymn. Some of you have questions about that pace. I do not have questions about that pace. And one of the reasons is not just because I like to talk for a long time. There's other passages I'm excited about getting to as well. But I was, I'm convinced still it was proper for us to slow down and dig in word by word, especially on these passages. Because in a sense, Paul's message to the church starts here. Verses 1 to 14 were all introduction. Here's how I've been praying for you. Heard from Epiphras. Excited about these things. Right? Here's how I continue to pray. Here's why I'm rejoicing. Then verse 15, he's kind of like, now let's get started. He is. And that's the foundation that he has laid. Verses 15 to 20 is what we're supposed to have echoing in our minds. I, if, I don't like earworm songs. Drive me nuts. The songs that just are there all the time, not going to even say any other titles. I have one in particular that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> Verse 15 and 20, if there's a song that can get stuck in your head and heart, I hope it would be all things together. Paul needed to lay this down and he's going to build the rest of his instructions and exhortations on the fact that Christ is preeminent. And, and you and I need that as our foundation as well. If we don't start everything with the reality that everything is about Jesus, we can only head in the wrong direction. But if we constantly remind ourselves everything was created by Jesus for his supremacy, everything will be reconciled and recreated by Jesus for his supremacy, 
that we fit into that as well, then we will walk worthy of the Lord. Then we will be fully pleasing to him when Christ is in his proper place in our lives. All of God's commands can be summarized as one, love God, two, love your neighbor. If you truly love God, you will truly love your neighbor. If you don't truly love God, you can't truly love your neighbor. Different passages teach us that. Perhaps another way of stating the command to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength is is this. Live believing that Christ is first. Not trying to improve on anything, but that's the same truth here. You know, what does it mean to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? It means to love Christ with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, which means grasping the truth with every fiber of your being that Christ is preeminent in everything. Live believing that Christ is first because Christ is first. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this this glorious one is the one who calls us to come to his table, to take of his body and blood in the bread and in the cup. That glorious supreme over all things, him, Christ, uh, offered himself for us. If if it's so great, uh, all the things that he did to creation, as we marvel in that, we can ask ourselves the question, like, if he can do that for all of creation, what, what can he do for me? And that's kind of next week's text, right? Because Paul takes this massive cosmic reconciliation and he's kind of like, you know, he did this with you too. Like, that's next week's sermon. That's next week's text. He did that shedding his blood on the cross. So we come uh, in faith to the table, in worship of Christ to the table. So as you are, uh, as you are dismissed, if you're a follower of Christ's um, don't have to be a member at Risen King, but if you are a follower of Jesus, thankful for him, uh, for who he is and what he has done for us, then, then he invites you to come. The firstborn over all things, the supreme one says, come to me. And that's what we do, uh, demonstrating that here at this table. So as you're dismissed, come down the center, uh, take your elements from the hands of the one who will serve, uh, one of our elders, Ken Smith, Return to your seat, and once we've all been served, we'll partake together. Before we do that, let me give thanks.